Welcome to A Sex Worker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the answer to life, the universe, and everything is sex workers. I'm your host, Parker Westwood, and today's a very special show. I get to bring on one of my dear friends and activist colleagues, um, Z St. James. Z and I are both co-founding members of a network of sex workers to excite revolution, or Answer Detroit. And Z also does a lot of other activist work with Urban Survivors Union and has just been actively involved in the sex workers' rights community in Michigan for as long as I've known them. So this is just a really exciting episode. We get into it, like emotionally, but also legislatively. We talk about so many things in this episode. which is why I need to put a trigger warning on this episode. We talk about intimate partner violence, sexual violence, suicide, um, violence against sex workers. Um, Nothing too graphic, but just in case that's triggering to anyone, I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Uh, I also wanted to plug for a moment, because Z St. James has the last name St. James, which, as we talk about in the show, is an homage to Margot St. James, who we lost um, in January of this year. Margot St. James was an incredible force for sex workers' rights and founded the organization Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, or Coyote, and later on ended up founding uh, St. James Infirmary. So this is a a loss for the sex worker community, but we continue the fight in her honor. She also had a fantastic haircut, if I may add. Um, And there is a celebration of life on May 1st, which I will post details for in the show notes. Um, I encourage you all to attend to celebrate the life of this magnanimous, fantastic human being who stopped at nothing to fight for the rights of her community for sex workers. And speaking of someone who doesn't stop at anything to fight for the rights of their community being sex workers, let's jump into this interview with Z St. James. All right. Hey, everybody. I am here with the one and the only Z St. James. Z, thank you for being here with me today. Yeah, Parker, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you could make it. We, we've we been working together uh, with ANSWER, a network of sex workers to excite revolution for a couple years now. And I'm excited to, I, I realized as I was sending you these questions, I actually don't know a lot of the story. So I'm excited to hear more from you and get to know you a little bit better. Um, why don't you take a little time to introduce yourself, name, pronouns, and the kind of sex work you do? Yeah, um, so my name is Z St. James. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I've been in the sex industry going on, I was calculating, it's going on 10 years now, (laughs) um, for most of my adult life, a little bit of my adolescence, and, um, since I was 21, I've been doing like escorting work mostly. Before that, it was online um, work and uh, sugaring 
I actually got into sugaring first because I was trying to search scholarships the summer before college and um so I was like 17 almost 18 uh and I was I took out all these college loans and got really uh nervous about it so um interview yeah. for scholarship seeking arrangements popped up um suggested like <laughs> no way yeah, yeah, there's my introduction. <laughs> that checks out. Good old Dan <laughs> trafficking me into the sex industry. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, if we're going to target anyone, let's target Fannie Mae. Yeah, the government. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's how <laughs> I uh, first dipped my feet into the industry. And then it wasn't until like years later that I started doing like escorting. Awesome. Cool. And we'll get more into your, your storyline with sex work, but I did want to tell you, you reminded me of this actually. And I thank you for that, that, um, I wanted to ask you the question about your last name, um, and where, where it came from. Does it stem from the one and the only Margot St. James and tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the name that I use for doing sex worker organizing work and also, um, you know, my preferred name in my personal life is Z. Uh, it's not the name that I advertise or work under. Um, and I, so I, when trying to come up with like, okay, I know I want to be called Z, um, like what should I use as kind of this persona for my last name, um, for doing political work, I decided to start calling myself Z St. James after, um, the late Margot St. James, who has recently mm -hmm. passed. Uh, she was a sex worker and organizer who founded St. James Infirmary in San Francisco, um, which was a, I think they did like social services and like medical care um, that was like zero barrier and accessible for sex workers uh, rooted in harm reduction. Um, so that is the name that I, decided to take on almost like how people take on names of houses or whatever. <laughs> yes, that's wonderful. I think she too had a huge hand in starting Coyote, call off your old tired ethics. Yep, Coyote. Um, there's a hooker's ball in there that Shel Silverstein attended oh, yes. and wrote a song about. So this, this Amazing. goes back farther than um, we even realized. <laughs> Absolutely. It is, after all, the oldest profession. Uh, well, I love that. And uh, rest in power, Margot St. James. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your story. You were panicking about these student loans, totally relatable, um, and seeking arrangements popped up. What, what happened after that? How did, how did you evolve in the sex work industry? Um, well, yeah, I had like a sugar relationship. Um, when I starting when I was underage, which like isn't the best, <laughs> um, definitely you know bring brings up some some questions of consent and everything. But um, we, we do what we gotta do, and uh, so that lasted for a couple of years. Um, I like moved out west with that person. Uh, actually, found the sex to be quite boring, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> So much so that when I left that relationship, I like, you know, experimented so much. I got mono within months, within a few months of, oh um, my God. yeah, when I was amazing, 19, got really sick, went back home, uh, lived with my parents and eventually 
you know, I was working retail and started doing webcamming out of my childhood bedroom at night <laughs> um, until mm-hmm. they kind of started figuring out what I was doing and not liking it. And by then I had enough money saved up um, that I was able to move out. And it's when, yeah, when I finally moved out on my own um, that I knew like I wanted to do full service sex work and escorting. Um, So I jumped right into that arena. I think that was around, let's see, well, I was like 21. And what year? Because that was before SESTA-FOSTA hit, correct? Yes, that was before SESTA-FOSTA. So I want to say that was like 2015. Okay. And then you ended up working in Canada. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, Yeah, before we talk about that I'll talk about like Mm -hmm. the beginning of some of my agency work maybe okay that started here okay yeah so that did start here um I I know a little bit I'll clarify a little about what you know about me so (laughs) um yeah I'm so excited (laughs) yeah yeah it's like disjointed I have like a little bit of experience in a lot of different things um what I don't have experience in is strip clubs though I've I've never um been a dancer I've tried to audition but did it they didn't want me anyway <laughs> um, the whole thing <laughs> yeah so I tried doing like independent escorting for a little bit and I had trouble getting starting started I mean like mm-hmm. figuring out advertising and everything's a learning curve especially when you're not connected to community um and yeah it was like I moved on my own I was young I'd gotten into a new relationship person knew that I was a sex worker going in um, and, but would kind of later hold that over my head. Mm -hmm. So it was through like kind of trying to work independently and being in this relationship that I was like, started like experiencing him lashing out against me or kind of like manipulating me out of my money and using, um, you know, guilt that I was in the sex industry uh, in order to get that, um, just started kind of be like a downward spiral. Like I was dealing, um, I didn't know anyone else in the sex industry at the time. So I was dealing with the stigma from my partner, um, kind of this tenuous relationship with my family who suspected maybe what I was doing, but, um, didn't really know I was doing it for money. They just knew I was like having cyber sex with people, (laughs) Uh, I'm a pastor's kid. So I come from this like pretty religious background and that certainly has like a lot to do with it. Like I had a, um, purity ring growing up that I asked for myself, (laughs) pledging your virginity for marriage. My best friend growing up that I, uh, who had the purity ring that I'm like, Oh, I, I want one just like you. She actually is getting married this Friday. Um, wow. I don't know if she still has hers or what that's her business back in the day. (laughs) The idea was that, so she might be losing her, her ring and I've (laughs) discarded mine a while ago. Um, (laughs) I forget that. I forget that you're a pastor's kid. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Sometimes the kind of like Christian camp counselor, uh, bit you can, see it in me if you look really close in some of my awkward fashion (laughs) I'm never gonna not see that now (laughs) yeah (laughs) very amazing 
Um, but yeah, definitely having those experiences. I think when you do experience stigma and, you know, like violence or like you're in the sex industry, um, it makes it a lot harder to deal with, especially if you're going through it alone. And like, I was already reading things online, like about sex education and sex positivity. And, um, I think I even read tits and sass at that part. So I knew this term sex. Yes. I knew some of these ideas and I would try to repeat them. I don't know how much I really had internalized it myself. Um, and the relationship that I was in kind of escalated and I tried to leave it several times. And when I finally did leave it, um, my partner outed me to my parents as a sex worker. And that kind of, it was at like the worst possible time because um, first of all, like they had most of my stuff. So I already kind of had to rebuild. My lease was ending and I needed to like find another place to stay. Um, Sex work wasn't my primary income. I also worked in a restaurant Mm -hmm. and I'd gotten uh, my partner a job at that restaurant. Um, So I quit that job. because I didn't want to, you know, be around them anywhere. I was like worried for my safety. Um, and, you know, the people you usually would lean back on your family didn't want to like support me, um, even like emotionally support me through this. They didn't really understand it or know what to do. Um, so I was felt very alone. I think that was probably, um, it was probably like, the most suicidal I'd ever been, but like the only time that I didn't seek help, um, I was ended up moving to like a completely different part of town and yeah, quitting my job. Um, and so I now had to rely on sex work income, which I wasn't doing very frequently. I hadn't really figured out how to advertise and and make like a decent income um, off Mm -hmm. of that. Uh, And so I decided to start working for an escort agency and mostly was like out of motels and stuff. The way they did things was like very dated. Like I talked to someone who's much older than me and worked for them back in the day and like they still had not changed their prices the prices were very low um and then they of course took a chunk of whatever you made um right do you remember how large the chunk was like what the percentage was um let me see I mean if you don't that's fine I was just curious they took like 40 percent I would say of yeah what you made I found out later that they like wouldn't really screen the clients. I found like a lot, a lot of, you know, like pushy people, um, stealthing, uh, just experiences of like, I don't, I don't necessarily call it like outright assault, but just, I mean, technically is like sexual assault. If someone's trying to get you to do something you don't really want to do, um, Mm. just like not the best experience, but I stuck with it because they had the client base and um, I like didn't have another way to be connected to clients. And I, I needed the income, like my mental capacity and functioning were not very good. I'd like dropped out of school. Um, so it was really hard for me to do any other work. 
that's the way that you felt about the agency being kind of your access to clients is how I felt about the strip club when I was working in Detroit for like that blip in time. Yeah. Especially after, after Sesta Fosta, I was like, how do you find clients? Um, But I imagine like, yeah, it's just, it's just easier when you have the agency that people are turning to, but anyway, but yeah, and I then I did eventually figure out how to work Backpage with Bitcoin because Backpage was still around for a little bit. And that is when I ended up experiencing more stability. Even though mm-hmm. I wasn't connected to enough other workers to really know how to screen and um, you might screen a little bit differently. Uh, it was just like more income coming in. So I was taking the agency clients. I was like learning how to take my own clients um, and slowly just kind of like building up, like saving money, getting financially more stable. Um, And around that time is when I started to meet some other sex workers um, Mm -hmm. through Swap Michigan who I'd like sent an email to when I lived at home with my parents and was working online, like probably like a year and a half before that. Uh, But yeah, it was when I was working on Backpage that I connected with some other workers and um, through working on like sex worker rights issues, which like I seemingly had familiarity with, I seemingly like really wanted to like end the stigma And I would like say those things, but I think I didn't, not that I didn't believe it, but I didn't fully internalize like what that meant for me. Yeah. Um, Because I think I would, when you, when people are telling you like, oh, like, why are you doing this? You're exploiting yourself. This is dangerous. Like, this is bad. You are, and we hear, you know, anti-trafficking advocates and, um, you know, religious people like talking about us that way, we really want to push back with like, no, I choose to do this. I'm empowered. Like that's like, you're automatically, you get into this defensive place. Um, yes. Like kind of from like this, this is sex positive. Like I bring joy to people. I bring this and that, which isn't necessarily bad or wrong, but it also doesn't hold place for vi- like the violence um, or like trauma you might experience, or, I mean, I think, I think it's more difficult. It doesn't allow space for reality, uh, because we contain multitudes and issues are so much more complex than one side or the other. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I got you. <laughs> and let, you know, no, absolutely no one is, um, no one has to display their trauma out. <laughs> for everyone whether that's sexual violence you've experienced outside the sex industry yes. or inside the sex industry like we shouldn't demand that of people um for sure but mm-hmm. like I'll sit in these human trafficking trainings and they're telling me like oh yeah survivor the brain of a traumatized survivor is the same like frontal lobe is the brain of a four-year-old and like all these really infantilizing things um, about people who've worked mm-hmm. in the sex industry um, and experienced trauma, uh, which is like not all of us, obviously, but even for those of us who have, like we have a lot more agency than that. Our experiences are more nuanced. Um, 
And so like when people will kind of criticize the sex worker rights movement for being like too sex positive um, or uh, they'll say they're glorifying the sex industry, things like that. Mm -hmm. I understand sometimes where they're coming from, but also you've got to like, what are you looking at? Are you looking at someone's client facing account that they're trying to make money? Of course, they're not going to like talk more about nuance because that is like one very specific side of us. <laughs> um, right. You're not in like the community of other sex workers. And it's when I started to connect with other workers through Swap Michigan and then eventually through Answer and some of these other advocacy groups that there started, um, I started to be able to like process some of the trauma and violence that happened to me alongside other people who had experienced that too. And yeah. um, that was really powerful. <laughs> For sure. I, I think it's really important that people, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is so that people can see us as human beings and not on either side of the spectrum as like people who need decisions made for us and like don't deserve rights and on the other side like these liberated goddesses or like whatever gender neutral term we're using for divine being um because we are we're human beings uh we make mistakes we're also badasses like we have all the complexity um and I love that I remember when you were like, oh yeah, I use a different name for my activism work than I do for my work, my sex work. And I was just like, oh, that's so fucking smart. Too bad it's too late for me now. <laughs> it's partly a gender thing because I'm she, her when I work, but I'm they, them, like with everyone else I want to be authentic with. I was also talking today about, I love that. Um, someone was asking me like, oh, what does gender mean to you? And I was like, felt a little put on the spot, but I was reflecting like with sex work of how like, yes, I do present a lot more femme for working. And it almost is like, sometimes it can be hard being in that space and being sexual because I do have trauma, but I see it mm -hmm. almost as like my femme warrior like body armor in a way that it puts space between me and the client like this idea mm -hmm. and the fantasy of what they want to see and who I really am in my experiences that I might not really want to share with them that's like not for them to take um and yeah it just makes me feel a lot more confident uh when I have to get all dolled up and put on a wig and go to work and see a trick um, and they're seeing me as something that I'm not, but you know what, like, it's okay. It's like for this certain amount of time, it's for this purpose. Um, and it can kind of protect the real me <laughs> in the moment. Yeah. Emotionally. Yeah. I, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day. It's so interesting that we're talking about this because we didn't we didn't plan on this part of the conversation. <laughs> I love that. Um, but I was just talking to a friend yesterday about the fact that I, I've been cultivating a relationship with my body. Yeah. And um, often like writing to my body. And and it's I've kind of realized the same thing that like my body is the she, her pronouns and like the soul within is the they, them pronouns. And like in in that I can kind of find this um serenity or I don't know what other word there's like peace with with gender um so I love I love that that's how 
you also like utilize and and view gender and it's a constant I mean ask us in six months we may have a different answer about gender because that's the magic of it gender is a performance it's you're performing for a lot of people cis heteronormativity or whatever (laughs) because that's the thing they want to see not all of us sometimes they really like the bisexuals the queerdos but um give me androgyny yes Yes. (laughs) I've been watching too much tiktok yeah (laughs) where were we in your journey here you we're talking about you know that I experienced like I've worked for an agency I've worked like for myself I've had um some partners that I guess you know, some people might hear about my experience giving money to an incident partner and be like, that was your pimp. And I would say no. Uh, but again, mm-hmm. like, what are the role of third parties? Like, are they a good or a bad thing? Yeah, let's um, let's take a minute here. And maybe I feel like it would make sense to talk about intimate partner violence and maybe like that dynamic. And then also explain what third parties are when when you say that term like what we're talking about um and and the political place or like the legal place that that holds um that's a weird way to ask this question but I know you know what I mean so I'm gonna leave it there I'm gonna try (laughs) it and then you can follow up and get whatever I don't get (laughs) feel we know how to tag team (laughs) (laughs) but yeah okay so intimate partner violence is just um I think maybe more of a like less gendered or stigmatized term for like domestic violence or Mm -hmm. um experiencing violence with someone you're sleeping with I guess that's what like intimate partner actually means uh so maybe they're your boyfriend maybe they're your husband maybe they're a trick I don't know um for me when I use that yeah I usually mean like a partner like a dating partner um, that I had. And so it could be, you know, that encompasses physical violence, sexual violence, um, this more nebulous kind of like emotional or manipulation when there's substances involved, uh, that also kind of like throws things for a loop as well. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit later when I talk about some of the advocacy work but mm-hmm. yeah sex workers um I don't want to say like we're at risk for, we're at high risk for that like we are and it, it is not our fault and it's not because it's the nature of the industry it's because it's a criminalized industry so mm-hmm. people really target us and they look for people who are younger sex workers they look for street-based sex workers um they look for drug using sex workers. When I say they, I'm talking about predators. Um, Mm -hmm. So like whether it's a predator or this is a relationship you get into um, and there's like some unhealthy, abusive, even dynamics going on. uh, That's what I mean. And it's, again, it's something that people like assume, oh, you're a sex worker, you're a P word prostitute. Like, of course you have a pimp. Of course you experience violence from uh, clients. Of course you experience, like really it's from the police. Uh, That's not necessarily true. I know those are stereotypes. And so they're stereotypes. I think that we sometimes want to like separate ourselves from and say, oh, that's not me out of respectability. That goes back to the whole, like I'm empowered. I choose to do this. 
Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it is true that like a lot of us have those experiences um, and it does play into our work. I mean, like I started doing sex work, like manage sex work more so I could get out of that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a very nuanced issue when you're talking about sex work and domestic violence and, and then eventually uh, what we might call trafficking. <laughs> right. There, there's a quote here. I'm hoping this trans- transitions us nicely into uh, your time in Canada, but maybe if it doesn't, just be like, we're just launching into Canada. Mm-hmm. There's a thread on Twitter that you you discuss some of your experience in, in Canada and working with third parties. And the, you write, despite working for a variety of what could be considered, quote, third parties, end quote, I don't consider myself a victim of trafficking, although the law certainly would. Would you want to elaborate on that statement a little bit and maybe talk about your work with with third parties and what the law might consider trafficking? Yes. So third parties legally would be like anyone who like manages a sex worker. I know we have like pimping laws so it could be in an exploitative way but not always you know people who are escorts will have booking assistants that they hire on that's considered a third party uh if you hire a driver to drive you around and i know in that thread i mentioned you know having kind friends drive me around to appointments technically that's a third party under the law they are physically transporting you so that is constituted trafficking um our partners anyone who profits off the, the earnings of a sex worker could potentially be considered a third party as well as like, you know, booking agents, managers, um, strip club managers, even all of those would be included when I say third party. So that not necessarily bad. Um, however, it's because it's a criminalized industry, it definitely uh, gives the opportunity for exploitation. If just like, I mean, all capitalism uh, would give opportunity for exploitation um, of like that managers <laughs> or someone who is like controlling your work environment <laughs> could uh, dole out against you. Uh, but especially for criminalized industries. Yeah, in this case, it's criminalized and the third party laws are intended to target people with malintent, right? But they're so broad that they could include sex workers, loved ones and friends. And and it's, yeah, the intent of the law is not how it's actually carried out. Exactly. Or Go figure. Two people that are trying to work together equitably do a duo or maybe you're the friend who's watching out for your other friend who's doing car dates on the street, but under the law, like people have been charged with trafficking each other with trafficking themselves uh, because the law just sees like anyone who's facilitating prostitution as a trafficker. Yeah. And here, when we're saying the law, we're talking about the U S criminalization, like full criminalization of sex work. Right. In this, which in, in that little thread, and I know we want to like kind of move on to talking about Nordic model stuff. Like I do have some experience working in Canada <laughs> um, and experiencing abusive third parties uh, under the Nordic model working in Canada. 
yeah, before we go into your experiences, will you explain to us what the Nordic model is and then kind of tell us about your experience yeah. with it? So sex work or prostitution um, is fully criminalized in the United States. It's not fully criminalized uh, in all countries, you know, in New Zealand, it's decriminalized, which means it's just not illegal. Um, but, you know, trafficking and exploitation is still criminalized. Um, there's this model called, people like to call uh, either Nordic model because it's used in lots of like, I think it's used in Sweden um, or even partial criminalization. Uh, they also call it the equality model, which I'm not too fond of. I think that's like a sugar coating of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that basically means where that on the side of the seller, so the sex worker, uh, it, it is decriminalized. So you won't get arrested for selling sex, um, but on the buyer end, that is still criminalized. That is illegal. Um, and then a lot of activities around the sex industry are also illegal. Mm -hmm. So that's the model that Canada has technically that it's legal for people to sell sex, um, but not to buy it. And uh, third parties, so like pimping kind of stuff is also still illegal. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like a great 101 of like Nordic model versus decrim mm -hmm. or criminalization, not decrim. I keep doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people who um, will hear like anti-trafficking advocates, um, people who are behind like end demand will really be pushing this model of like Nordic model because they'll say, oh, well, we don't want to criminalize the sex workers. We recognize that arresting you in order to rescue you isn't the best thing, but we still want to end the demand for this. So we're going to criminalize Johns. We're going to criminalize buyers um, because what they're doing mm -hmm. is bad in order to end the demand. And like, first of all, if you're going to make it so less people want to buy sex, like that's just going to force the people who are trying to sell it into some like much more precarious situations because the people mm -hmm. who are interested in seeing us um, will either want to target us or, um, you know, be exploitative. It also puts more police presence out there because you're trying to arrest people actively who are quote unquote Johns. Um, and any, you know, any increased policing of sex workers has the potential to be deadly. Even in a model of under full decriminalization, if we did do that, we know there are things that existing sex workers, especially the most visible ones who are outdoor street-based sex workers would still be profiled and targeted for. And so even if the police can't arrest them for um, prostitution, you know, they're surveilled and they'll charge them with something. They'll charge them with loitering or public intoxication or a drug crime or um, just, you know, anything that has to do with survival and poverty. <laughs> yeah, well, because the stigma still remains and yeah, the, the cops are not immune to stigma as, <laughs> you know, like not immune to hold, holding whorephobia in their hearts. Um, 
among many other things. But also I think to this, this idea, whenever I think of people who are saying like, we want to end demand that you were saying a bunch, when I think about, when I think about the people who are saying we want to end demand, I'm like, you have a God complex because you can't, you can't end demand. You can criminalize demand, which is what they're doing with the Nordic model, but you're not going to end the demand. You're just making it more dangerous for everyone involved. It doesn't matter what you criminalize around in the industry. You're still making it dangerous for everyone involved. And then of course, clients, and I'm sure you, you might have an experience with this or maybe not, but like clients have an aversion to screening or giving you any information, um, when they're the ones that are on the the end of being criminalized they they're just really wary that you might be a cop yeah i definitely saw that working in canada too at first i went over there hopped on back page um i'd originally like gone over there because i thought like oh yeah it's like less criminalized right like i don't like working for my agency here trying to live this like leave this domestic violence situation i don't really like i'm like having to spend lots of time in motels anyway. Um, so I like traveled a lot. Like I was kind of running from stuff cause I was <laughs> and yeah. yeah, go across the border and yeah, clients were like screening. What's that? Why would I give you a reference? No, <laughs> that was like not the wow. Canada, uh, which I think other people who you'll talk to will say that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I like tried to navigate working in Canada by myself, eventually kind of, oh, it was my bus ticket back. I missed my bus back and there weren't any more tickets for the weekend back. So I was stuck in Toronto and I didn't have like a place to stay, but I just had my suitcase. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I didn't have a place to stay and all the buses were booked for the weekend. Um, and I ran out of money. So at first I, yeah, I was able to make a deal with a couple guys to like shoot a porn scene and they paid for my hotel. And then like the next day I'd connected with another provider. Um, and we kind of started sharing a workspace. And then she invited me to meet this guy who drives her around. Um, <laughs> and there were quotation marks yeah, there everyone just so you know the guy who drives you around but this this guy was um a, a pimp I guess more of a pimp <laughs> um mm-hmm. he would like place the ads and we would give him like uh you know a certain amount of our money um and he mm-hmm. was fine to me um I mean like he wasn't violent to me but I, one of the black sex workers who was in our little group um, eventually told me later that he did put hands on her uh, mm. and had that capacity. Um, so being like having a U.S. passport, especially like in Canada, if you tried to like pull some shit with me, it would be very easy like first I tried to find a different managed working environment that was more equitable um which was this kind of like workers collective but the person who ran it talked to their lawyer and they said since like you are from the U.S. um 
technically it would be considered trafficking because you don't have like a legal visa to work here and you wouldn't be able to get one in order to work in the sex industry. Um, so I wasn't able to, and like those kind, that kind of worker collective thing, you know, not everyone can work independently. If you can, that's great. But like, sometimes we need to share workspaces. It's great for safety. It's great for mm -hmm. cost saving. Um, and if you're new to the industry, you might want someone who would charge a fee to handle some of your advertising. Like that's uh, just because you're not familiar with it. Um, that isn't mm -hmm. unheard of or inherently bad. It's the same way an independent sex worker would hire someone to manage their booking or manage their uh, social media, sort of something along those lines. Yeah, it was a similar thing. I think like when I talked to that particular group, like collective of people, they were like, yeah, here's the fee if you just want to like rent our room for your client. And here's the fee if you want us to handle your advertising. So it was like very equitable. But again, because like I was technically a migrant <laughs> in Canada, right. um, I they, they turned me away. They were like, no way. And who knows, you know, if I was a migrant from another country, it might have been a different story. It might have just been because the U.S. is so criminalized they didn't want to take a chance on someone with a U.S. passport um right so in some ways that barred me from accessing collective working spaces in other ways it protected me from violence especially like probably just as a white person um in Canada you know that third party manager guy who I gave my money um didn't lash out against me but Right. he would do that to other people I would learn um there was another there's an, another like pimp kind of guy I ran into oh. in Canada too it was more like a boyfriend pimp kind of situation only lasted a couple days my trips were very sporadic kind of flying by to the seat of your pants like a little bit of like survival and excitement that I don't want in my life anymore you, you can do that when you're younger a little bit when you're young and dumb I guess <laughs> but uh now that I say oh my oh my god what could have happened uh I look back and like yeah that that wasn't the best for me but I did in my short period of time working in Canada which was probably only totaled a couple of weeks I experienced a lot more third-party managers and why because it was still really hard to work because it was the Nordic model because clients you know, don't want to screen. So it makes people more reliant on um, those third parties. And I think that's really important, you know, if we're looking at uh, different models of sex work, um, the Nordic model, especially for certain populations, really has the potential to increase the violence. Which is so important to recognize and I thank you for bringing that up because it is really important because the people pushing the Nordic model are the people who are anti-sex trafficking um, or that's their platform right yeah. and so to recognize that the Nordic model creates a space in which sex workers who are consensually doing this work um, for whatever reason, like if it's just economic necessity or it's because they like some, I mean, it's always negative. It's for money. We're doing this for money. Like, let's be clear about that. Um, but for whatever reason we're doing it, it actually like pushes people towards these third, third party 
managers that could be, that has the potential to be exploitative or violent. Yeah, and discouraging us from being able to work together because again, one of us could be prosecuted as um, a trafficker or a pimp or for keeping yep. the brothel. When really, yes. you know, that we are the ones to keep each other safe. Yes, say that one more time for me because... I love that. We are the ones who keep each other safe. We keep each other safe. Sex workers keep each other safe. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to move into more of your current um, experience with sex work and your you, what your sex work you currently do, working as an independent sex worker under criminalization in the United States. How how have things changed for you, or how are things different um, now that like you've since since you've been working in the states i know that in canada that was like a short stint let me rephrase this this is clumsy clumsy questions are always fun but sometimes i'm like wow my brain is so scattered um so i know that your time your time in canada was short um and that you've been working in the united states for some years as a sex worker now um and are currently independent um so Tell us a little bit about how your work differs now and some of the the things you face. Um, Yeah, so definitely working more independently. I mean, I eventually kind of wised up to like, these guys don't know shit. These agency people don't know shit. Like if I don't need to rely on them, um, which isn't always a process, it's kind of like a transition process, just like transitioning out of the sex industry would be a process. Um, You know, you might keep seeing a couple clients who pay you at your your older rate, who you didn't screen as much um, while you start to increase your screening and safety measures, while you start um, increasing your prices if you can. Um, that, that- Let me just say here for a moment, because I was just like, yeah, managers don't know shit. Um, I just like felt it well up in my being. Um, in at the strip clubs, they they tried to get every girl. In fact, they would mandate that you had a manager. Um, like a some of them manager. Some usually it was a specific manager, and um, they would, yeah, they would help you quote unquote help you get your dance card and like help help you stay on time for your schedule. Like send you reminders of like when you were going to be. So basically, and and what I knew because I was seasoned at that time uh was that you that I didn't need a manager and that he was doing all of this easy work and getting a cut of the money and that the strip clubs were mandating that these girls had a manager so they were like enforcing this third party anyway so when you were like I realized these guys didn't know shit I was just like preach because they don't Um, oftentimes we don't need that manager we just feel like we do yeah, because they tell us we do. Um, because they tell us, mm-hmm. oh, when you're gonna age out of this, like, which is for a lot of us kind of like the opposite of what is true. Um, <laughs> but especially like at least in a strip club, even if you're not encouraged and it's like a competitive environment, like you do have those other workers there. Like when I was working, you know, in Canada, like there's at least like some other workers there for the agency that I worked with in Detroit. Um, we were not encouraged to talk to the other workers. Like I met one going on a duo, 
but like we weren't they didn't even talk to us about like sexual services so I didn't know until I went on a duo with someone that most of the girls were probably upcharging for full service and I was just (laughs) like all of these things that and again everyone can like choose their own prices like I've sold sex for $40 and I've sold sex for like a few thousand, you know, depending on the situation that was in. And I would, I would do it again for that amount if I had to. Um, Mm -hmm. But the more we can share information with each other, the better, Uh, even just like being able to get tips on different business model things or like, oh no, you know, you can charge extra for that. Right. If you want to, like things like that is like so, Mm -hmm. so important. Um, did I get off topic? What was the question? Where are we going next? <laughs> no, you're so good. You're so good. I was just like, yes, community is so important. Um, and red flags when they're trying to isolate us big time. Yeah. Um, oh, we are talking about more like independent work. Yeah. We're talking about you, like your current experience in sex work and like where basically where you've arrived now um, and how, what your experience is now. Yeah. So now like with the pandemic, I've been turning to like probably half online work doing some like phone sex work with night flirt um sometimes Mm -hmm. I do camming I have like content that I've made in the past that still sells so there's that and then yeah I I do um still do independent escorting types of gigs uh so that's probably about like half and half half online half in person um right now and definitely having more control over it is a good thing um although even in doing more independent work like I don't know I had a lot of like guilt for a while about falling into these manipulative relationships these like quote-unquote abusive relationships like Mm -hmm. even as recently as a few years ago um that kind of like will and a lot of times they come around out of necessity like even though I didn't need someone to manage my sex work after FOSTA and SESTA I needed someone to drive me around still um so it'd either be that there's a relationship I stayed in once because I needed someone to help me move and I was not physically able to do so by myself um Mm -hmm. things like that so there are you know experiences that I continue to have like I have supportive people around me who I think are better at helping me identify when I might be getting into a relationship like that um because it can be really hard but again like I had someone who I consider like a mentor tell me when I was coming to them about uh this relationship that was occurring like you you know that's not your fault right like I don't know if you have like a history of uh abuse or experiencing intimate partner violence but like people kind of sniff that out and like target us for that and that's not okay and that's just something that we have to deal with sometimes but this is like a really common experience that people have um and so like that really helps me to see things in a different light um and to come to terms with some of that stuff and to realize like you know it's not my fault (laughs) yeah as 
as a uh, survivor of sexual violence, I resonate with all of that. Um, really embodying the it's not my fault piece takes, it's a journey. It is a journey. And I feel like I'm still embodying Pete like that, um, where I confront a situation and I recognize how much ownership I'm taking over things that are outside of my control. So I really resonate with that. And I think uh, intimate relationships are where a lot of that is uh, brought up and I get to face it all over again, um, usually in a, from a different angle, you know, um, but it's it's a wound that, that goes deep because it's a story we tell about ourselves. So I'm really glad to hear that um, you're finding some healing around that and that you have that support. Yeah, um, and definitely I hope like through some of this, it's funny, like I, I didn't, so, some of this, while it was happening, I was doing like trying to do like sex worker organizing and I was trying to like preach against stigma and all of these things. And sometimes like, yeah, you got to change the thoughts before you change the internal beliefs here. So it's like work that we all do. But I think maybe mm-hmm. we also make assumptions about people who who speak those things like, you know, they're, they're all they've got it all figured out. And sometimes the reason is we don't we're saying that because we don't have it all figured out because we're trying to like counteract this other narrative that's inside us um and so you just you never know where someone is at it wasn't until recently when we're we're having these like local political conversations where people are trying to nudge us into the nordic model that i'm like wait a second actually i worked under the nordic model and yeah it was not great i do have like some personal experiences here that i can talk about and say like yeah no i, I guess the law mm-hmm. might have at some point identified me as like a victim of trafficking or something because of how the third party laws go but like this is not this is not what i would have needed i would not have needed further criminalization or you know i mm-hmm. nordic model in the united states would not have um, prevented some of the violence that happened to me here. Um, uh, what, what did help was, you know, finding other workers, um, learning more about harm reduction uh, through that and ways to work more safely. And, and even just being in a space where we can carry the stigma um, that we all face together. Yeah community and showing up for others has been a huge help in in the healing process because it allows us to see we're not alone um and it also provides a support structure of which we are a part right we're not the only one being supported we are also supporting other people um which brings us gently and ever so smoothly into this topic that you had chosen and i'm so elated about it It was this healing through action piece Um, and I wanted to ask you, like, I have an idea of what you meant by that, but I'd love to hear it in your words. Like, what did you mean by healing through action? And then feel free to just like dive into some of the action you've taken that has helped your healing process. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a newer realization for me. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the work that I've been doing with Urban Survivors Union. Uh, which is the National Drug User Union. 
I've been involved with for, I think maybe going on two years now. Um, and so at first I, uh, they have a sex worker working group um, that meets that's for sex workers who use drugs, sex workers who work in the harm reduction field, um, or sex workers who are interested in learning more about harm reduction. And um, I knew a little bit about the drug piece of harm reduction, but I mostly knew about like the sex word, sex work side of harm reduction um, going in. So I first joined that group call to try and like further my own knowledge. Um, and through that, we worked on a project uh, that was trying to address this law that was being pushed out of Ohio that would criminalize furnishing a sex worker with a drug as um, uh, though it would make it uh, trafficking. So it brought in the definition of force, fraud, coercion, which is trafficking to include giving someone a drug in coercion, um, like mm -hmm. to, to constitute coercion. Uh, now, now, of course, this um, was put about because of like the increasing like overdose crisis and try to try to combat this issue of substance use based coercion being used to traffic people into sex industry, which does happen. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that's something that happens in our communities. Uh, however, what we know is that trafficking laws have been used to police sex workers who are doing this, you know, more consensually. They've been used to police trafficking survivors and criminalize trafficking survivors. Um, they're not good for either of those groups or whoever kind of lay in the intersections of both. Um, and like some of the issues that we could get uh, with that particular law would be, you know, like encouraging people to use drugs alone, which again, in an overdose crisis is like very, very dangerous. Um, you know, like it, it also, it didn't say whether the drug had to be illicit or illicit. So like, is this Narcan? Is this birth control? Is this me giving my friend an Advil before we go see a client? Um, right. You know, it could erode good Samaritan laws that protect people trying to, um, resurrect someone, uh, revive them, <laughs> resurrect, <laughs> revive right. them after an overdose and use Narcan, like if you're using that with a client, would the client just leave you there because they don't want to be charged with a trafficking charge? Um, it just opens up this really nebulous area. Um, so the, the sex worker working group of the Urban Survivors Union um, took this issue and we started by interviewing people within our communities um, and our circles who were sex workers who use drugs or trafficking survivors who use drugs. Some of them had um, themselves experienced substance-based coercion. Some of them um, just had, you know, substances within a domestic violence or trafficking situation. So we interviewed them about their experiences, about um, what they tried to seek for help, what helped them in that situation, what didn't what would have helped them in that situation. And we start, started to see certain themes come to light. Um, the biggest one being that the services that are meant to um, help people leave domestic violence or trafficking situations 
really are not good for people who use drugs. They really, most of them mandate abstinence in order to access housing. Um, a lot of them, in order to get domestic violence services, you have to go and make a police report. Uh, and so we can just imagine, you know, that's traumatic enough having to actually go and report your, your violence. Um, that what's happening there, um, you can just make it so you get caught up in the criminal legal system. Um, obviously, we saw a lots of faith-based services that, you know, had stigma against sex workers, um, and especially, you know, trans people, gender non-conforming people, they like either just wouldn't serve them or b because they did such a bad job, people don't want services from them. Um, so we started to see that theme. We also talked to, um, when, when I, we've talked a lot about anti-trafficking advocates and a lot of times like, you know, people in our mm -hmm. will say the antis and we'll vilify them. You know, not all anti-trafficking advocates believe in Nordic model or end demand criminalization. Uh, surprisingly, there's this group called the Freedom Network um, which trains service providers, um, like domestic violence and tracking service providers. And they are pro decrim They're having their uh, conference this week, I think. Um, so they have a whole network of people who uh, think more like we do. And that was really heartening. But we were able to see from like the service provider side, okay, like what are the issues? And one of the things mm -hmm. was that um, there's this law that in the TVPRA, which I'm going to get into. I know we're getting into the weeds with some of the advocacy stuff, but I think it's really fascinating. <laughs> um, I could listen to you for hours, so just go ahead. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's this law in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which uh, the TVPA um, is basically the biggest source of federal funding for anti-trafficking. Um, that's including stings and services to people, and also um, domestic violence services. I think the Violence Against Women Act got lumped in with that act. So when I'm kind of saying, I'm not trying to say domestic violence and trafficking interchangeably, but I put those two together because they are funded together, uh, which is an important thing to know. Um, <laughs> this huge law, there's not a lot of other laws who, that... Um, come at funding this way, but trafficking, this issue of trafficking, uh, it does. Um, wow. So yes, in that law, um, there's like a couple stipulations. One is that it like prioritizes funding programs that are in demand higher, that, or that, that go, use an end demand approach, um, such as like doing John Stings, uh, mm -hmm. higher than um, approaches that don't. So it's going to like prioritize like giving that grant funding to those organizations. And it also has a stipulation that says that groups that receive federal funding cannot promote the legalization, and I say legalization, not decriminalization, of sex work. And so that has been interpreted broadly by a lot of these service providers um, to mean that I think they're thinking more, oh, we can't promote decriminalization, thus we can't support sex workers, or we can't like house them because if they're still going to be involved in the sex trade, that's why a lot of times you'll hear like exit, exit, um, 
that kind of language because they think they are trying to like they are like promoting prostitution which is not true um right you can receive federal funding and help sex workers um and that's not being pro-legalization. Like I'm not pro-legalization, I'm pro-decriminalization. So again, those are- two. Yeah, can we, would you mind defining the difference between the two? Yes. So um, legalization is gonna be, think of like Nevada brothel, brothel method. Um, so uh, it's like putting forth laws that will regulate the sex trade, maybe make people register or having to do STI tests, which I've heard people be like, that's good, right? We want to treat this like a public health issue, but really it is, it just legalization creates two markets, it creates a legal market and a, an illegal market because not everyone's mm-hmm. going to be able to um, register with the government if you're undocumented or, you know, if you can't pass an STI test, um, but you still need to make your money that night, um, you're still going to do yep. what you're going to do. And then you're going to be subject to criminalization. So decriminalization would just be removing the criminal penalties for participating in the sex industry, but not requiring you to like get some sort of a license. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that that's a really important distinction that not a lot of people understand. I'll hear people who um, really support sex workers um, and cl- or claim to support sex workers and want to be an ally. And they, they're like, I support the legalization. And it's like, mm? I think... I think you need to read about what that actually might be. Um, So thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. I know there's like all these different issues. um, But an interesting thing about the TVPA and doing more research in it is you see all of these things that we talk about now laid in that groundwork for all of the different reauthorizations. So, okay, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because we were just talking about this law coming out of Ohio, which I'm not going to mention because one, I don't want it to be reintroduced, <laughs> but two, um, I think it is going to be reintroduced into this TVPA thing that I keep talking about. Um, okay. So yeah, we talked to people in our community. We uh, talked to service providers. Um, And then we did some training and work to be able to meet with this senator who had proposed the legislation. Well, we haven't heard back from him. And if you've been following some different sex work laws that have popped up in the last session of Congress, like you might be wondering what happened to earn it. Um, And okay, this isn't confirmed, but what we think might happen, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the big federal law that funds all of the anti-trafficking and domestic violence efforts is going to be reauthorized um, in the fall of this year. So what we think probably will happen is that, um, you know, some of the the legal push around like substance use coercion and trafficking or, you know, laws like earn it are going to be rolled into this Trafficking Victims Protection Act reauthorization. Um, which is a law that I think only gets reauthorized every few years or so. So we've shifted our focus to working on that and we're able to roll in a lot of the work that we did do into this. Um, 
because we don't want laws criminalizing like the use of substances um, Mm -hmm. in there. And there's some other stuff that there's so many things we know we don't want. But right now we're working on affirmative asks for that law, (laughs) which is hard whenever you're trying to do affirmative asks, because again, you can't say, we know what we don't like. We don't like um, these like faith-based anti-trafficking groups um, Mm -hmm. requiring that we're abstinent or to access basic basic services that we need to survive. Um, We don't want things like that, but you can't write it into law like that. So we're trying to um, preemptively kind of anticipate what are some of the issues that are in it, Section 230 things, um, issues around survivors of trafficking who do experience substance use coercion. What are those? And then what are the affirmative asks that we can ask for? Like, what is our ideal world of things that would address these issues in ways that aren't mm-hmm. carceral and are, you know, um, going to like be the best outcome for the people who are the most impacted by issues of domestic violence and trafficking, which um, drug using sex workers, unfortunately, are at higher risk of it because of just Absolutely. the lack of resources. So um, it is through, and I know we started this converse, this part of the conversation by talking about healing through action. So I talk about mm-hmm. all of like the nitty gritty stuff to say in learning like wow, how big this system is, like all of this language that we've, that's been hurled against us, where this originates from, reading the different reauthorizations of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, um, finding out how uh, the organizations are funded um, Mm -hmm. and like what is prioritized. uh, And then also doing the interviews of people who had experienced violence um was really healing for me in a way and I don't think people should do activism with the intention of healing like primarily like that's not why we do it that's why you go to therapy but I've been in like the Mm -hmm. psychiatric like therapy system for a long time like going on 15 years now half of that was traumatizing half of it was helpful I don't think I've made as much ground as I have. I don't know. I've like processed things a lot quicker trauma-wise through doing some of this work because it's cool to be able to say, okay, we know, like, we know these are issues like we both experience on the ground. You could be in some sort of survivor support group and that is helpful. But when you can point to the institutions that are doing the harm and making the harm happen, the institutions that are arresting us and criminalizing us, you know, even if you've never been arrested for prostitution, you've probably, you know, the, the fact that you're afraid of client violence, um, the police have something to do with that. The criminalization of sex work <laughs> has something to do with that. Knowing that you can't go and report violence if it happens against you or someone who wants to harm you can use your criminality against you. Um, that is violence that we've all experienced on you know micro or macro levels, unfortunately. Um, so being able yeah. to like figure out how the system works and where we can really impact change, who we need to talk to, um, has been 
really healing. And I have talked to some of the other organizers in the project and I know they have uh, similar thoughts in that. Um, it can be just very affirming. Absolutely. I think, I mean, and we've talked about this in answer meetings too, that that no movement will be long lasting without an element of healing. Like there's, there is collective healing that needs to be done in any social justice movement because we face, and I think sex work is this unique issue that is at this like intersection place of all of these isms like capitalism, sexism, white supremacy, borders, patriarchy, like all of those things. Um, and there's a lot of healing to be done around those things. And so if we're not doing that healing work, we are at risk of acting in those systems or falling prey to those systems again. Uh, when, when all we're trying to do is knock them down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, I think that's very right. Like I support people being able to have like services that are low barrier, that meet people where they're at. If you want to have professional help and therapists, by all means, you should be able to do that again. Uh, that's not without certain institutional harms <laughs> that are there. And um, when you have more resources available to you, it's better to get more, it's easier to get more out of therapy. But I will mm -hmm. say uh, like when it comes to like sexual trauma healing, like in sex work, like we really have the power to help each other heal just by holding space for each other. Um, unfortunately, it's hard to find a good therapist that's not gonna stigmatize you for your work. Um, we don't always have those things accessible to us. So just in, you know, holding space with each other, like we've done through answer. I know we have like a peer support group, um, you know, being mindful, checking in with one another, or even doing these political projects where we start to bring some of our stories in on our own terms, you know, in ways that feel okay to us, this healing by choice piece. Um, yeah. I think that's really essential and powerful. Agreed. It really does take a village, um, the healing process and raising a child, but that's where that, that saying is from. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> raising the inner child, raising the inner child takes a village. Um, wonderful. Is there, is there any work that you currently want to plug um, that you're doing with Urban Survivors Union or with ANSWER um, that you can think of at the moment? I know we do have an answer fundraiser up. Um, that's how you and I know each other primarily and have gotten to know each other. And I know this podcast definitely helps to support the work of. I'm really grateful for that. Um, there's no events with answer I have off the top of my head. So yeah, I just direct people to our social media, our website, our, um, I said Twitter already, our fundraisers. Uh, and then with Urban Survivors Union, yeah, maybe I can give you some more links there. That um, is the National Drug Users Union. They meet remotely. Um, it's really good if you are looking to um, learn more about harm reduction or even just try to find a group of folks that maybe isn't as like a, a um, pure abstinence-based uh, oriented. Um, doing like some of the good work to try and destigmatize drug use. So that is, yeah, another organization I would check out. I know we do have a methadone fundraiser um, for some of the methadone advocacy work. So I can also plug that. Um, and 
on a personal level, if <laughs> I do have a Twitter account, it's at Zed Weirdo, Z-E-D Weirdo. Um, that comes from, I have a friend. So Z, Z is what you would call the letter Z in Canada. And then I have a friend who calls me Zedward, like Edward. <laughs> That's where that opens. Oh, cute. I like that. So good. And all of that will be linked in the show notes for anyone interested in exploring all of those links. Um, so I have one more question before we launch into our rapid fire questions. Uh, what is something you wish the greater public would understand about sex workers or sex work as a whole? Oh, that's a good one. A lot of times we like to pit survivors against sex workers. Um, you know, like survivors of trafficking against sex workers, but there's people in both categories. And I think all sex workers are survivors, you know, we're survivors of criminalization. Some of us are survivors of different kinds of violence, whether it's the violence of stigma, um, institutional violence or interpersonal violence, like so much of the population also experiences. Um, but we also are survivors because we support each other um, and we're really what each other have to rely on. Absolutely. I love that. Also, as you were, that reminds me that as you were speaking earlier, I didn't want to interrupt you, but one of the things that came to my mind was that sex workers are against trafficking. Like I would, I would venture to say like all sex workers are against trafficking, yeah. right? Like the, <laughs> We're yeah. against trafficking. So, <laughs> criticize the anti-trafficking folks. We're not for trafficking. <laughs> we don't like that. We don't want to experience no. exploitation. No, because so we're we're against trafficking, but we're also against police violence. Right. So yeah. cool. I love you so much. Um, and I'm so so proud of you. Um, let's get into our rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Vanilla or chocolate? Vanilla. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Fishnet or lace? Uh, fishnet. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite place you've ever been? Um, the, the mountain, I forget what they're called, but the mountains in Albuquerque. <laughs> Ooh, in Albuquerque. Santa Fe, I think the Albuquerque's are Sandia because yeah, watermelon. Oh, cute! <laughs> I like that. Uh, a book from your mandatory reading list: Revolting Prostitutes. Hell yeah! Uh-huh. Uh huh. A secret talent. Secret talent: baking cookies. Oh, delicious! I'm coming over. Um, <laughs> a song, a musical artist, or an album that you're currently obsessed with? Kate Bush. Yeah, that's what I was. Any, any, we got in there. Um, let's see. Uh, what's that one where she like dresses up like a little boy because she's acting out this story? Cloud busting. Love that. <laughs> Love that. Uh, okay, finish this sentence for me. Good sex is consensual. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised that one hasn't come up yet. <laughs> if you had one superpower, what would it be? to be invisible mm, mm-hmm. that's such a good one like sneak and spy on people yeah it's so good what is something simple that brings you joy 
the sound of a tea kettle. Ooh, what a good answer. That reminds me of um, Hannah, the comedian Hannah Gatsby. Oh. She says her favorite sound in the world is the sound of a teacup finding its place on a saucer. Aw, <laughs> I, can, yeah. I can hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. I am just, every time we get to talk, I'm so like enamored with everything you have to say and I'm so proud to be your friend and to do this work with you and I it's an honor to have you on the show so thank you so much for coming yeah thank you so much I'm uh really excited um yeah I'm I'm excited to hear the edit (laughs) (laughs) you and I know how to talk but yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right let's say goodbye to our listeners bye listeners bye (laughs) don't y'all just love that human being i'm so thrilled to be able to share this interview with you all yeah there's so much information in there i feel like i could listen to it over and over again and learn a few things so i hope you all do that um again the links to urban urban (laughs) the links to urban survivors union and answer are going to be in the show notes as well as the link that I mentioned at the top of the show uh, to Margot St. James Celebration of Life on May 1st. Um, And of course, Z's links uh, specifically to their Twitter. And if you want to support the show, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash sexygalaxypod. You can also follow us on Twitter at sexygalaxypod. Um, we do not have an Instagram as of yet, though y'all have me thinking about it, so maybe that's a thing that's coming soon. Um, you can also share all of this with your friends. Um, if you have friends who you think would enjoy the show, please share it with them and just keep listening. I'm so humbled to know that I have a listener base that regularly tunes in. I, I watch those analytics, y'all. <laughs> so thank you. Um, yeah, and with that, I will sign off. Again, I didn't think of anything spacey. Um, I've been watching a lot of Star Trek, though, so I should be able to come up with something. If you find yourself in a warp bubble, and you create an alternate reality, just make sure you create an alternate reality in which there are a shit ton of orgies. Nanny motherfuckers.